Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Is the church just something human beings create to serve their own purposes or to maintain old traditions? Or is the church something more vital, more meaningful, and more powerful? My guest, Scott Sunquist, thinks it's the latter, and in his new book, Why Church? He brings us a portrait of the church in motion, clarifying the two primary purposes of the Christian church, worship and witness. It's a great book. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Scott Sunquist. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to see you. Full disclosure, we do know each other. You've been my professor, and uh, we've known each other for years. So it's, yeah, you, got, it's, you got good grades, so we'll see how you're doing now. I, you mediocre. Yeah, I, was, I, was, yeah. I did okay. I did okay. Mm-hmm. You have written a book that I think the title of which is a question a lot of people, whether they're religious or not, would ask. Why church? Because it's, it's, it's not just people that aren't drawn to Christian faith and, and or religious observance in our culture. But also there are a lot of people that self-identify as Christians that, that you know, there's this uh, subset of the, of the socio- sociological research that in the nuns are these people called the duns that, hey, they're still connected to Jesus, but they don't want anything, with the, anything to do with the church. So, I mean, why did you write Why Church? That wasn't my title. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was their title. We took that's the uh, only book that took me about you know six months to find a title. I actually had the title "A Guide to the Church for Those Who Don't Do Church," and uh, that was a little too long. It wouldn't fit on a bumper sticker, and so they, we went with "Why Church," which uh, is a nice open-ended thing. You know, who's asking and why does church exist, or why should I go to church? You know, so there's enough ambiguity there. But I did write it as a guide for those who don't really do church, who might be dabbling, or they just became a Christian, and they don't know what this whole thing is about. So it is. it tries to be a basic introduction for people who might be a little hesitant, or who just um, going to to Bible college, they were raised in this religious environment, and now they're away, and they have an opportunity to not go to church. And so it's uh, being used as a textbook in some Bible colleges also for first-year students. It's interesting. You In the beginning of the book, you talk about going, when you were in California, you and your wife going to like 35 different churches in the course yeah. of a year. And, and you, you you just sort of phenomenologically describe like, gosh, at the, you know, the Catholic mass, people are on time, but they leave early. The black church, they often, people kind of come in uh, when they want, and yet uh, the service is longer and they stay at the end and all these things. And then you have these... You have this section, what's in a name, and you compare some American <laughs> church names to some uh, Af- African church names. I love these. Guided Missile Church. You gotta love it. <laughs> um, healing Tsunami Church. Now, I'm wondering, like, is that a church that heals people after the tsunami comes in, or are they a healing, yeah. a tsunami of healing? Yeah. And then my favorite, Satan in Trouble Ministry. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Boy, that says something, doesn't it? <laughs> No question what's going on there. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, but but what it says is for Africans, power is important. And and their and their religious experience is all about power. It's a power over the spirits and it's power over nature and so forth. And so they want to advertise that this is a church where there's real power, not just 
power like a little wind, a quiet wind or a small whisper, but a tsunami or missiles, guided missiles. You also, you talk about how you, I mean, your parents raised you to go to church and yet it never really took. And yet you, as a teenager, you had a very powerful conversion experience as a late teen and where Jesus became very real to you. Yeah. And then you talk about, you know, how you can sympathize with people that struggle with the church because you've had your struggles with the church as someone who really felt like Jesus was calling you to it. And you have this remarkable observation. You said, through all the struggles, I realized most of the time I was the problem. Yeah. That, that really the church is not one. You, you say it, it's one of God's greatest ideas next to Jesus. It's not really something to just put up with. Yeah. But as part of the Christian faith, you really need to see the beauty of this design for God's redeeming plans, right? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, something that took you a while to, to come to. And that's a good reminder. Of, I remember writing that in the book thinking, you know, all the the church, you know, it was boring and all this kind of stuff. I mean, those were people that were committed to me and they had no reason to be committed to me. I mean, they would come on their own time at a youth group or something and do, and why do they do that? I mean, that's really quite an amazing thing that people volunteer to spend time with you, to take you bowling, to go on retreats and everything. And I said, what was wrong with me that I couldn't appreciate that? And it really was a change that had to take place in my heart. Um, though um, I would like the church to change also. Yeah, you're, yeah, right. I mean, and this is uh, this is part of, you know, the one of the things that John the Baptist preaches, right? Like lots of, you know, Second Temple Jewish apocalyptic people is not yet, but soon. You know, and Jesus changed that to already, not yet. And a lot of the struggles that you're talking about, right, are this, the church is, is always already and not yet. There's going to be stuff there that's like a sign of the of the new reality God promises us. And there's stuff there that's just going to be really not yet <laughs> and remind us that yeah. our hope is not uh, in anything that we possess or uh, on this side of God's uh, victorious action. Yeah, the way that I describe it is the church is both human and divine and um we need to live into that divinity. We need to live into that holiness. We need to live into that signpost of the uh, essence of the church and then push against that very fallen humanness that, as you see in many churches, uh, the greed that comes with power. There's power in churches and leadership. And last night I, I taught a course here in mission theology and I put up a slide at the beginning. It was a picture of this mega church. I think it was in Mississippi and it had a for sale sign out front. And <laughs> And then I uh, I put up this quotation from Emil Bruner, you know, that the church exists uh, by mission as fire exists by burning. And I said, now, what does that mean and how does that connect with this slide? And it, it is a church, I can almost guarantee you, it's a church like many that was built on the ego of a, of a pastor who really attracted a lot of people and attracted a lot of money and a lot of business people. And then when that pastor died or left or was kicked out, there was just too big ego space. <laughs> there wasn't a, there wasn't anybody with a big enough ego to fill that church. And so it's up for sale. And so that fallenness of the church we see so much of the time. So I'm hoping that by people reading this book, it gives some hope and direction of what the church can be, that it's really a, a beautiful thing. Yeah, George Limbeck, the scholar f from Yale, great late 20th century thinker, said that the church in North America is in this weird position of no longer being established and yet, yet, not yet totally disestablished. I mean, and you see that in different parts of the country. The church feels like more a part of the priorities of the culture than other places where it seems much more like Western Europe or, or Australia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you talk about Christendom, you know, this, this time when sort of after Constantine, when church culture 
politics, all these things are rolled into one. Why, why do you think it's important to understand that legacy uh, before you unpack the rest of the book? Because we have this lingering thought of what the church is, and it's false. And the lingering thought is the church is an essential part of the culture. And it's more of an outpost rather than an icon of the culture. But for so many people, they view the church as this Christendom thing that, oh, that's so you got the Constitution, the flag, the church, you know, it's all, all wrapped up together. And in my travels uh, in so many places in the world, to go to church is a dangerous thing. Uh, it's a very countercultural thing. Uh, I remember in a taxi in Beijing, we were going there around Christmas time and they had some Christmas decorations. So we asked my, our daughter speaks Chinese and I said, ask him if he knows about Jesus. And, uh, and the guy says, no, where does he live? You know, he thought we, were, <laughs> we wanted him to take him somewhere. He said, do, do you know what, what Christmas is about? No, I, I you know, don't know. It's clueless about that. So people who go to church there, they are going to have to explain why they go there, what's going on. In America, we still assume that it's just a part of a, a cultural uh, fix and so forth. And um, we're not radical enough in our understanding of just how powerful it is. You know, just one little example. If you don't, if you're not a Christian, don't go to church. What do you do at moments of great celebration, uh, a birth, a marriage, you know, so forth? Well, you, you find together a community or some kind of a community of people who are not absolutely committed to you. The church it's supposed to be people are absolutely committed to you no matter what. It's called grace. You know, it's called mercy. And uh, if you mess up, if you make a big mistake, they still will take you back. It's a, it is the family of God. Um, so celebrations. And what about mourning? You know, I've had a lot of mourning in my life. The church is there and, and they come back again and again. They pray for you. They, they bring you meals and so forth. So so emotions find a place of, of being sanctified, lifted up, validated in the church more than any other place. I mean, people get depressed, and, and if you're not Christian, you go to a bar and you, you drink or something like that. Well, that's not very satisfying. But you go to church, they still receive you. They, they're still there. Um, and so that was another element that I, as I was doing the, the, the writing of the book, that just became to bubble up because um, I had uh, gone through some suffering and had a faculty member dying of cancer. And I thought, wow, the church is there, it comes around her and so forth. So just think about emotions in the church. We usually don't talk about that because, so I had to, I'm going back to the Christendom thing. We never think about those kind of essential elements of what the church is. And so by stripping away all the Christendom stuff and saying, well, that was just a bleep of about 1400 years. That's not what Jesus intended. <laughs> Jesus never said, well, when kings are converted and so forth, then you finally accomplished it. And my goal is that everybody goes to church on Sunday. No, he talks about uh, the, the wheat and the tares. And he talks about the narrow road. And so the expectations or the eschatological, missiological expectations were that, oh, everybody's going to be Christian and all the laws are going to be Christian in the country. Uh, Jesus didn't use that kind of language. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You lay the book out in in one word kind of chapters that are what you see as sort of in most churches, you'll find these common elements. You'll come, uh, you'll kneel. You'll, First you stand. Wait, I, I come. Wait, it's, yeah. So it was come, stand, stand. Wait, I was. I, did I get the order wrong? This is your book, so you would know. Yeah, come, <laughs> stand, come, stand, kneel, uh -huh. sit, and go. Mm -hmm. And come. It's interesting because you talk about you know everybody goes to worship. Everybody has this arrive, this sense of coming to this gathering. Right, the church mm -hmm. goes from sort of the church scattered or whatever when. People are in different neighborhoods and different doing different things, and they 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 gather together. But you also talk about this is the nature of of the Christian faith that that nobody, even if you're born into a Christian family, 
it's still at some point you have to come to God and connect on your own. And, and, yeah. and you, maybe you come from a completely, from a, maybe you're somebody like the guy in the cab that does nothing about Jesus and, find, and you find him. Or maybe it's something like your own experience where it's not that the church was wholly unfamiliar to you. It just, it, it wasn't something that was personal until somebody figured out a way to connect. But everybody has to, in some sense, right, connect to this mm-hmm. on their own. It's not private, but it always has to be personal. Yeah. It's, it's deeply personal, and at the same time, it's deeply communal. When you come to church, I like the, the, the image of coming to the cross or in, in, uh, uh, in the new, in, uh, Gospels or coming to the, the lamb who's slain before the beginning of time, but you're coming to that sacrifice on your behalf, and you get there and you look around and say, oh my gosh, look at all these people, and you don't have a choice. Those are your people now. That is your family. And so on one hand, you think, I don't like those people. On the other hand, you say, I can't believe it. They are absolutely committed to me. They've got to be because they love Jesus and they've their life is now hid in Christ. So they don't have a choice. They got to love me. And um, with the amount of depression that is increasing and suicide in the West, I think this is just a beautiful thing. When you come to church, these people are absolutely committed to you. So the come rep- symbolizes coming to the cross, coming to the community, and symbolizes coming to the community and not coming to Walmart. It's interesting because I think that 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 for many people the 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 ironic of the experience is almost the the opposite that 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 church becomes the place where they feel like they have to put on a kind of religious persona. So it's like I'm okay, you're okay, rather than the place where they feel like they could actually be mm-hmm. who they are. I mean, do you think that's because people just don't? People that have that experience, do you think it's it's just the message of grace hasn't penetrated in some, in some of those communities, or, or it's communicated, or the gospel's communicated in some way, or the message that's somewhere off kilter? One of the most difficult things to um, accept is that we are needy, um, and to admit that, and then to face up to the fact that we need help. The basic Christian prayer, I think I say in the book there, it says many times, the basic Christian prayer is help me or save me. I don't have anything to offer. And when we finally pray that basic prayer, which was the, the, the awakenings, the awakenings in North America were all built around that. It was an awakening to sin, not an awakening to love or joy. You were awakened to your own sin and you just, you, you, hands up, you just give up. Oh my gosh, I can't do anything. And uh, that's really hard. That is really hard. And unfortunately, we have to be totally broken quite often before we get to that point. I was very fortunate. Um, I did not have to be totally broken when I came to Christ. Somebody told me exactly why he came in. I said, my gosh, that makes perfect sense. That, Yeah, God is God and I'm human. I need God. That's what I need. And so I went right home and prayed. But some people, um, I've I've done research, uh, my classes there at Pittsburgh Seminary, actually, where I would have people in my evangelism classes tell their testimonies and stories. And I had about 60 or 70 of those and put them together. And one of the elements that almost always comes out is you met somebody, you read some Bible, you met some other people, got some fellowship, you attended some worship. And then at some point within you know months or four or five or eight or 10 years, there's something that happens. You didn't get into college. You flunked out of college. You, you were broken. And you you said, help me. Um, and, and that is really hard uh, to do. So you know, you pray that people don't have to come to a point of total failure before they say that. Uh, but it's true. Uh, we we need God. And that's, I think, what's missing in churches because we try to cover up. I have a saying that I tell all of my staff and my grandkids, of which I have 11, by the way. Thanks for asking. Uh, all, I, tell, <laughs> I tell all of them, look, we have one thing in common. 
we're all insecure. Yeah. And we just need to say that and get it out. And then we can deal with it. And we cover it up by being, you know, putting our chest out and being real strong, bullying people, getting angry or withdrawing or being depressed, you know. But just to be able to admit the fact I need help is just uh, the, the the way to completeness and fulfillment in life. You say something else in that chapter called Come that I think is really interesting. And you've lived all over the world, taught all over the world, have been immersed in lots of different cultures, have... Well, I haven't st- taught in Brazil. So okay, you haven't taught in Brazil. No. Right, right. And this would be the semester I wouldn't want to be there right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you have, you know... But you, you talk about, in your experience of interacting face-to-face in world religions, studying them, that while there are communal aspects... That, that there's nothing that all that redemption somehow is always individual, mm-hmm. except as you find in Christianity, where or where Judeo-Christian they, faith, which would include Islam. Yeah, see, all of those are very communal because of the Old Testament, which is built around a community, a nation, and then that's picked up in the church and the New Testament. But in, in those religions, you come to a community, and uh, the Jewish community is very important. Uh, I remember visiting synagogues in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, but when you go to a Taoist temple, you go to a Confucianist temple, you go to a Buddhist temple, you go to a Hindu temple, you know, you, you go there and people are in Sikh. They're, they're coming in and they're doing their thing. And they're, and then you can ask uh, somebody who speaks Chinese or whatever the language, you know, what are they praying for? Why are they putting on the gold leafing? Why are they lighting joysticks? And it's just a matter of if they're in a poor country, they're praying for more food. And if they're in a rich country, they want their son to do well on his uh, O-level or A-level exams. Uh, But it's individualistic. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? Because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sally Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower. Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsner, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. C.S. Lewis says, you know, that when you hear a great piece of music or see this breathtaking piece of art or read this book that just blows your mind, that you, your natural thing is you want to be external about it. You want to verbalize it. You want to tell the story of it. And he said, you, you almost, if you, you have to repress that urge, like if you're not going to do it, you, it's, you have to be conscious to not do it. Cause, and you know, this 
chapters stand, and you talk about that 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 this that you come and then you stand, and and, and there's different forms of praise and and, and worship, and but basically you're described through a sort of multifaceted prism, this insight of Lewis that this is this is this when when you actually see God for who God is in in the source of the good, the true, the beautiful, and connect to that. That there's a natural uh, reaction that, that that will be drawn out of you, and, and it's actually also good for you. <laughs> that this yeah, actually right. will change you and, mm-hmm. and 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 be a and be a real salutary thing. Yeah, I mean, when I had um, got my first pictures of our grandson, um, I just I was, I was by myself, and I looked around. Nancy was with with him in Florida, and I, I just wanted to tell somebody. I was so excited. I want to show people the picture. Uh, it was just so exciting that um, there's going to be another little Sunquist boy to carry on the Sunquist name, you know. And but the thing that that strikes me when when I was writing that chapter is not so much that, but it's the fact that. When we come to a temple, we're, we're, we're asking for help from the spirits, the ancestors, the God, Confucius, Buddha, whoever it is. So we're asking for help. When we come to church, we start to ask for help. And God's the image of the crucifix is really nice to have in a church. You say, oh, my gosh, he not only knew that I had a problem, he he assessed it and he solved the problem before I even you know came to ask for help. It's already been done. And so we enter with thanksgiving in his courts with praise. We enter in and he's already solved the problem for us. And so we entered not asking for help, but already he's been there. And he says, look, I know, believe me, I know about all of it. You're welcome. I love you just as you are. And that is just remarkable. That is, I, I don't know a religion like that. And that's very hard to accept. It's hard to accept the fact that you come to God and he says, oh, no, I know you so thoroughly. And I love you just the way you are. I love you so much. I'm going to make you even better. And then we find human thriving as he just breathes into us his spirit and and begins to scorch out uh, the ugliness that that we've uh, kind of uh, collected in our lives. I had a guy on the podcast last year, AJ Jacobs, who's written a lot of stuff. He wrote that book, The Year of Living Biblically. We tried to follow the Mm -hmm. And follow up to that, he wrote this book on gratitude called Thanks a Thousand, where he tried to thank everyone that was responsible for his morning cup of coffee. Mm. Uh, you know, he started with the barista, went to, flew to South America, th- met the growers, met, I mean, the water treatment people in Peak Skilling, all these, but he, he had all these meditations on gratitude and, mm. and he said something about how happiness doesn't make you grateful. Grateful is, is gratitude is key to your happiness. He says whenever he finds himself whining about slow Wi-Fi, he says to himself three things, three words, surgery before anesthesia. But, but I mean, but, I mean, you have a, some similar insights in this chapter that 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 very often that, that this act of gratitude of of just seeing God uh, not as an instrument or or a means to some end, but just as an end in Himself, really will 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 change you. Yeah, yeah, it it will change you. And um, the problem is to allow that to happen. It sometimes can be painful. Um, we would much rather hold on to what we can control. Uh, or think we can control, and we're deceived by that. Uh, one of the things as a president of a seminary, um, I'm constantly trying to remind people is, no, we're not in control. Uh, don't work 24 hours a day. Don't work seven days a week and think that you can fix it all. Um, Jesus is on the throne. I've got this uh, leather um, wood burn, wood burning knife was used on its leather from, I guess, a dead goat in Egypt or something. I don't know what it is, but it's a picture of Jesus on the throne. And it's a reminder that um, he is beautiful. He is powerful, and he's the one on the throne, not us. 
but we all often try to take that back and control it ourselves. And that's when we become our own idol and all idols tend towards destruction and violence. And so by letting go of that, we can move and live into peace and, and beauty is, is the way I would say it. And I think good church and good church worship uh, begins to open that world to us and we can become who we're really meant to be. You tell it pretty personal. I don't sound like an Asian church historian, do I? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Yeah, you tell a pretty personal story in that section about your own when you had uh, some tragic loss in your family and just really struggling with being able to stand to praise, being you know reticent to go to the seminary chapel, being more withdrawn than you usually are, and struggling with the truth of this reality, right? And and, and many people struggle with the truth of this reality because you know pain in some sense is common to us all. I mean, you, why, why, were, why did you feel the need to put that in the book? Because I think most of us suffer. And then in that suffering, we have two basic responses. We avoid facing up to it and we ignore it. Um, and in ignoring it, it can lead to depression, anger, alienation, whatever. Or we allow God uh, to breathe into that. And the only way we can allow God to breathe in that is we rush to him, not from him. And that is the possibility of wholeness and healing. And so I, I remember, I can, I remember like it was yesterday, sitting in my office with the blinds closed, the light off, and just kind of staring. I had a light over my desk and just kind of staring. And then I'd look at my watch. And it was like three hours later. And uh, I didn't want to go to lunch. I didn't want to go to chapel. Um, I had been through mm. a terrible uh, loss. And um And then all of a sudden, good theology hit me. And the good theology is I don't go to worship for myself when I feel good. I go to worship because God is deserving it anyway. And um, I would sit in the back and listen to the words and slowly I began to sing hymns again. But that's why I began to unpack why we praise God. We praise God for what he has done, for what he will do, for what he's doing in my life. For who he is. And so there are many different reasons that we praise God. So maybe at that time I couldn't praise God for what I had seen he had done or allowed to be done in my life, but I could still praise him for who he is and he is love. And um, so I think that needed to be put in there because there's never been a church where I preached at where I found somebody who's never suffered. And um, so it's important to know that praise is not conditional. Um, it's absolute uh, because of who God is. There's a atheist, Alain de Botton, who uh, founded this thing called the School of Life in England. He's this, his first book he wrote after his philosophy undergrad was how, read, how reading Proust can change your life. And he thought, why, you know, all these concepts in undergraduate philosophy, these are important people. And he's, you know, from this, written lots of books and become an amazing communicator. He was giving an interview and the interviewer was shocked. That he said something about original sin and he, and he said how, how even though he's an atheist, he finds this uh, really relevant and, and comforting. And Botain says, that's why the concept of original sin seems so plausible and applicable and also kind, because it basically says, look, when you meet someone new, don't just look for the positives. Just assume that something major has gone wrong here. Treat everybody you meet as though they were laboring under some really big problem, basically. That's the starting point of any encounter. Rather than how great they are, it's more like, okay, where's the broken bit of them? That's a much kinder and more interesting way of getting to know someone. And also to say, that's the bit of you I'm actually interested in. Like, I don't really want to hear, that's fantastic that you've been promoted, and you know that's great, but like, 
I don't think that's where your real self is. You, you have this whole section about it called Neil and, and, and the power of confession. And it's one of these things. It's like the, the indigo girls, like the hardest to learn is the least complicated. It's not complicated. It's just hard to deal with the fact that human being is not what we wish it was in general. And none of us be human beings are, are what we wish we were. And, and, and it, it, it seems offensive. And yet, it, Patan's onto something, right? It's actually liberating when you embrace it, and 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 leads to the kind of way of living that that actually I think would make make it easier to be around one another. Well, I would I would disagree with Patan in in the terms of the direction of that thought. I think that thought should be for ourselves. We should look for that within ourselves and bring it to light. Yeah, I didn't. Then the context of he, he yeah, there's a but thing above the, where he but, starts it himself. But, but to find, yeah, but to find yeah. it in other people, I think is the exact opposite. We need to do to build community. We've got to find something of Christ, the image of God, in that person, and help to lift that up. That's the only way we're going to build real strong community. So, uh, but yeah, within ourselves, it's it's a very hard thing. Confession is a beautiful thing, and it's one of the things that is most missing in our worship services. And I think you identified it when people try to kind of put on airs and look nice and be cool. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. You know, kind of, like, are you really? Um, so that's not healthy. And our church worship quite often just moves from praise to a message or, okay, now, like I told you this one church we went to, it must have been 4,500 people there, all the ages of 20 or 30 and all drinking coffee and having to go to the bathroom and kind of nervous and anxious moving around. It was an amazing place. And uh, they said, okay, it's, it's time to do com- communion now. Uh, you know what to do. That was it. Well, there was no confession of sin. You know, we come, when we come to communion, I mean, this is serious stuff. Uh, even if you're just a Bible Christian and reading the Bible, this is quite serious stuff. This is deep what's going on there. And uh, it's just kind of, you know, flippant. So there's no confession of sin. There's no recognition of why the cross. And uh, But the only way to be healed is to admit you need, that you're sick. And so um, that that is that was something that's very troubling. So I spent a long time talking about uh, longer than most people probably want <laughs> talking about confession and sin. Uh, but I think that 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 could be a real way of unleashing the power of churches if we have people who are really quite genuine attending churches. Yeah, because I mean it's interesting because most people because people are busy and they have anxiety and hang ups about religion. I think for a lot of people going to church is like walking across broken glass and 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 it become if it's another pressure cooker if it's another place where people can't say um i i realize i'm insecure i realize i don't measure up i realize that you know that i need for i mean it that that is i mean there's not really many it's interesting because we may be a more permissive culture but we're far less forgiving i, I mean and you see this now in public life i mean anybody that uh makes a mistake you know like a, a politician a public figure you know it's it's you become they they must go away you know it's it becomes and maybe this is one of the most countercultural things the church has in in american culture is is a place that can reintroduce people to what forgiveness and grace means yeah to go back to the public thing all of those attacks on people when we find some weakness also is built out of our insecurities if i can prove what you're doing wrong i feel better about myself i i recognize what you're doing wrong and you're, you're, you know, you're, you fail in all these different areas and I've identified it. So I feel a little bit better that I've been able to do that. And that is a dead end. That's a dead end because eventually people find you out. Uh, it's so healthy and wholesome to know that you're accepted just as you are. I put it all out there. This is, you know, <laughs> I thought a lot about this because as a president, uh, you're exposed a lot, you know, other people read your email. Uh, and so I've got to, okay, this is who I am. You know, uh, this is what you got. And I'm not going to be hiding anything because I'm not very good at hiding things. 
And so uh, it's right there. And so I've thought a lot about that. And um, I I have a basic policy in, as president of no secrets, no surprises, no subversion, and be fully supportive. I think those are Christian principles. I really do. And uh, when we hold secrets, we usually do that to control the narrative or to control a committee. And it's usually subversive. And so we try to be open and honest about things. And if we make a mistake, be quick to say, hey, I forgot to answer your email, made a mistake, rather than kind of hiding it uh, sort of thing. Well, that's all part of confession. That's a life of confession. It's really healthy and wholesome. And it's a wonderful way to live. Yeah. And that... You said a control is interesting, right? Because so I think so much of the things that we hate about ourselves, right? That, you know, when we're the things that, you know, are hangups or compulsions or whatever. So much of it relates to control and we're, we're finite, we're fragile, mm-hmm. uh, we're fallen people. We all, you know, most of us were honest, no, we're, we're mixed bags. And, and yet we, with all that, we still want control. And so often part of the confession you're talking about is realizing that you're finite and, and faltering mm-hmm. and, and, and there's, there's again it's hard to to get over the hump to face that and yet when you're over the hump there, it, there's a freedom to that yeah that's true and it's not just that i'm finite i can't I make mistakes it's also i willfully uh continue to 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 live into these addictive behaviors and find my comfort and soothing in these addictive behaviors and we know better than that uh you say well i'm weak i can't help myself well you know that's not true i we had a, a child once so i will not tell you whether it was a son or daughter uh, who had this anger issues when this child was young and uh, broke a cabinet, uh, broke a, a hand, you know, hitting things because the child was angry. And I remember the child saying, I can't help it. God made me this way. I said, well, God made you with passion. I don't think he made you to break your your hand and to, to break our cabinets and so forth. And uh, and that is not your the final word about who you are. Uh, that's an expression of something really good that God's uh, given you. Now, this child has grown up dealing with those sort of things as a gentle, kind, loving person. You never would have guessed that, but also strong, you know, very strong and capable. Um, and so, you know, facing up to those things means, I think, and, in, and it's, it's interesting, in church is where we can find that healing. I think we would put half or two thirds of the therapists and counselors out of business if people went to church Here's a great story. Okay, you want a great story? The, one of the first people who read my book was a professor here, uh, Karen Mason, who does counseling. And she said, Scott, your, your book is great. It's, it's just so helpful in counseling. I said, what? <laughs> and uh, so I talked to her about it. And the, the part where I deal with emotions and I deal with worship and finding your true identity, we become what we worship, you know, talking about those sort of things. She said, this is what people need. They need an identity correction so much of the time in counseling. And that you've identified in church, that's what can happen in worship and community and so forth. We have an identity correction. Oh, I thought I was this. No, this is who I am because I'm worshiping Jesus. And so um, I just thought it was so interesting. The first person responded. And I, what I didn't want to tell her, I said, you know, Karen, if you take this seriously, if you have people read this book, you'll be put out of business <laughs> because, because people aren't going to need counseling all the time. I think that's absolutely true. I found, and I have a a section in the book, as you know, called uh, Little Church and the Big Church, which um, I think is very important. It's it's where we find these smaller communities. We really have some accountability and support and so forth. And I can tell you numerous times where we have been helped and other people have been helped because we met together and talked through things and prayed and we visited and brought food and so forth. And if a person didn't have that group, they were living far away from family. Where would they go? Oh, I I need therapy, you know. Uh, which is probably true. 
But uh, there's so many ways. Another quick example. Um, a year and three days ago, our son-in-law passed away. Um, he was Orthodox. And um, there was a wake service. There was a memorial service the next day. Uh, it took place for about six hours. It was, a, it was a, an Orthodox church with a Syrian Orthodox background in Philadelphia. These uh, Middle Eastern ladies, you know, Armenian, uh, Syrian, Lebanese background, brought food and they brought more food and they brought more food and they were just present. Um, they continued to call our daughter. They continue to be there. Now, um, when you have a loss of a 37 year old uh, with three kids, it's hard. It's very hard. But the church is there and providing for the kids and for our daughter. Uh, what would happen if that were not there? Uh, she has no family uh, living there, at least not our side of the family. And that's the kind of thing that, that good church and good worship. So if you ask a question, why church? Well, because we need community and we need not just community. We need community, meaning the presence of Christ in our midst uh, where there's power to bring about transformation and healing. I remember uh, when I was teaching at Fuller, the uh, School of Psychology, uh, the folks there would talk about salvation in terms of healing, that Jesus came to bring healing. I thought that's really interesting. You know, he, he was a healer. He's a great physician. I used to use the word salvation or liberation, but they're different words for what's going on. But the healing that takes place, like you're saved and continually being saved, it's an ongoing thing, but you're healed and continually being healed by and in and through your participation in the church. There's a book written a couple of years ago by a guy named J.D. Vance called Hillbilly Elegy. And he talks about you know, growing up in kind of uh, poor rural white country, you know, white uh, America. And he talks about how church got his family through a lot of their struggles. And that a lot of, I mean, a lot of people wonder how so many evangelical, conservative evangelical Christians can be enthusiastic about someone like Donald Trump, who seems to be so antithetical to some of the, some of their values. I thought we were going to get through this interview. No, uh, it's, it's Scott, you need, I was looking for an endorsement. Like this is the best book on the church, the most glorious, uh, but you know, like Van seems to say like a lot of these folks uh, who identifies Christian, it's an ethnic thing. It's not, they, they haven't heard the redemptive words and the powerful messages that got his family through. And, and, uh, and I mean, that's a huge part of your uh, book where you talk about sitting, like sitting before the word and having your mind, your imagination reshaped yep. by the stories of, of God's own liberation, redeeming and healing. And, and yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that, that does, mitigate I, I think right like otherwise christianity just could become another ethnic thing or another identity marker if it's not constantly uh, kind of uh if 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 this word from outside of you mm-hmm. is not speaking and shaping yeah that's a good point and that's why i would say the church is not just therapy because therapy just sits there and listens and kind of affirms you quite often i, mean, I know that I'm, uh, i shouldn't simplify that i know that it's not just that but the church speaks authoritatively words that we need to hear and sometimes are hard to hear. Uh, uh, and we're often afraid to do that. That's why the sitting is so important. And I, I view the sitting as sitting with our ears open, our, our, our uh, eyes open and our hands open before to receive, to take in all of these words and to listen and meditate. And like you said, to reshape our mind so that we are, th- are thinking, our reasoning and our imagination has been transformed. We no longer dream and think about just being famous, but we dream and think about how we can serve others. We begin to take on the very mind and heart of Christ. A great example for the, 
for me is this past Saturday, I attended a Thanksgiving service for Michael Haynes, uh, one of the great heroes uh, for me of the of the 20, early 21st century. Uh, he was a board member here at Gordon-Conwell for 40-some years, but that wasn't what was talked about at his memorial service. Two or three people came up and called him father that apparently he adopted. I don't know who these people are. And Louis Farrakhan spoke. Louis wow. Farrakhan spoke at the memorial service of this great Christian leader who just built up 12th Street Baptist Church in 12th Avenue Baptist Church here in Boston and uh, and talked about how uh, he taught him to follow Jesus, that, you know, Michael Haynes taught me to follow Jesus. So here's somebody with a strong word for the, the guys on the streets of the city there. He helped to redeem many of them and get basketball scholarships, get them scholarships into colleges and so forth. Um, and uh, that the church was the place that they came to, they could hear those things. And what they heard from Michael Haynes was not, you know, I love you just as you are. It's okay. Don't worry about it. No, he says, we got to change this. You know, we're, we're going to work on these things. You know, we're going to get you from here to there. And I'm on your side. And I can imagine Jesus saying, yeah, I'm on your side. I believe in you. I'm going to help you. I'm not going to just say shape up. Let, I'm, I'm going to pull up my sleeves and I'm going to work on this with you. So um, it was a, it was amazing um, uh, to listen to the stories of people but when I heard Louis Farrakhan speak at this Christian memorial service about how important it is to follow Jesus, he was almost giving, he, he was about ready to give an altar call. You know, he said, Michael Haynes was a real Christian. If I'd met more people like Michael Haynes, my life might've been different, but he didn't just talk about Jesus and, and, and it's worshiping Jesus. That's not the real thing. The real thing is following Jesus. And that's what you need to do. You need to be like Mike. <laughs> the last words of Jesus in all the gospels and in the book of Acts are, are or go, like he sends the disciples. And you talk about that that's the sort of full circle that every week people are sent out of church. And, and that's, you say the church has really two purposes, worship and witness. Yep. I, I'm wondering, like, what do you see as the unique challenges and opportunities of being sent in American culture right now? Like, how, what, are the, what are the unique opportunities? And what are the things that, as someone who cares about the mission of the church, you're like, man, this is, this is a tough one, you know, that we've got to, you know, think about and work on. Yeah, I think that's probably your easiest question you've asked. All right, good, good. <laughs> because because uh, we are so alienated from one another. The, the rate of depression and suicides going up, the, uh, the, the disrespect for people who are different, uh, the racism, the nationalism. I think the gospel of Christ speaks in healing into all those different areas. Uh, more than we've ever seen in my lifetime, uh, this message is uh, is a salve, is a medicine, is a healing uh, for all of those kind of things. And so it's pretty easy to say, oh, you have that kind of rejection of people, that kind of disrespect, that kind of violence against people. Look what Jesus has offered. You know, he steps right in the middle of that and he takes the blows himself. And uh, we're going to raise up a community of people who are willing to do that. Um, and to, for the church to really be the church in the neighborhood, you know, I quote Newbegin that the, the church should be that local institution that if the government says we're going to put in a parking lot there and tear down the church, the local people would come who are not even Christian say, no, no, because this cares for our people. This church cares for this people. There's a church in Pasadena where they have a special service for uh, children and young adults who have mental uh, uh, deficiencies or handicaps, and they have a worship service, and they're loved. And I saw some of them baptized, and they talk about this is where I love to be. And the whole family, extended family, wants to be there because this church loves our children, and nobody else knows what to do with them. And they know what to do with them, love them, and see them as a gift to the church. So that's the kind of value that the church can add to a community if it really is like 
people like Michael Haynes if they're real Christians there. You are president of a seminary. You're still teaching students. I mean, do you, do you face cynicism and skepticism about the church from seminary students? I mean, is that something that you encounter in American culture today? Um, I, I think some. Here at Gordon-Conwell, I'm pretty impressed with the quality of students that we have. And they want to make a difference. And I visited about, and, you know, I, I visit a lot of churches. You might think you ought to go to church, son, because you write about it. You should go to church. So, <laughs> well, I, I am going to, I'm going to go to join a church. Okay, please. But I felt like I needed to visit churches here because we have students working in field education in, in local churches here in the Massachusetts area. So I visited about 15 churches where our alums are pastoring. And every church, there's something new. There's some kind of outreach or some kind of new program, a new worship service. I plan a new church. There is vitality. And so that is apparently something that's being taught here. I hope to find out what it is. And I don't want to mess with it. I don't want to break it because it seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, Do you feel like if you're visiting as the seminary president with the alum, you're not like a real mystery shopper? They're like, it's sort of like when the board comes in at the cafeteria and the lettuce yeah. is all green. I mean, yeah. Yeah. well, I usually, they don't know I'm coming. And a lot of people don't know who I am. I've started this back in uh, February or March. At uh, one church, I was found out. Uh, somebody recognized my picture, and they came over, and they said, can we pray for you, President? I said, how'd you know? Uh, but most of them, I introduced myself afterwards. So, uh, yeah, that would be uh, that would be, <laughs> that would be hard. It's like when I come in and tell a faculty member I'm going to sit in their class. Uh, well, it, it's always a really great lesson. Uh, but it's been encouraging, because I, and I hear that, I hear, I talk to parishioners afterwards. I said, how long have you attended here? You know, why do you go? Oh, I used to go to this other church, but I'll tell you, they care for children here. We've got this great program here and they're doing this and that. So um, I'm optimistic about the possibilities and what's going on at this point. But um, I'm realistic because Christianity is declining very rapidly in New England. But there is a quiet revival going on in Boston, but it's mostly in Spanish and Portuguese. And so a lot of English speaking people are absolutely clueless to what's going on. We're talking thousands of people coming to faith at these evangelistic rallies in Boston. Uh, but, you know, the white church folks don't know about it. What, when you settle in up there on and, and join a church, what will be, you think, the most important thing you'll look for? To make sure my wife's happy. That's very good. That's yeah. a happy wife, happy life, right? Yeah, there. yeah. Now, we, we talk about these things together. Uh, she was raised Southern Baptist. I'm an ordained Presbyterian pastor, but the closest Presbyterian church is about a half an hour, 35 minutes away. So uh, I'll attend some there. I'll join the Presbytery. Uh, but we'll, we'll look for a place where there's community and where there's uh, good, wholesome worship, the kind of things that I write about there. And uh, there are three or four that we could easily attend that uh, are within, you know, 10 minutes of our house. Well, Scott, I hope that uh, wherever you join, they'll buy your book. It's uh, <laughs> it's very readable. It's, uh, it's fun. And thanks for writing it and spending some time talking to me about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, stay in touch. Good to see you. I like your name. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email. Or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Scott for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Why Church. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.